If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet PlushCare, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Watching that Kansas City-Buffalo game yesterday, you were thinking, boy, if the Browns had just pulled it out, they'd be going to the Super Bowl. Something that would have been unthinkable even two years ago. Oh, well, there's always next year. It's this week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with my colleagues, Chris Warnowski, Jane Cahoon, and Laura Johnston. Happy Monday, all. Good morning. Happy Happy Monday. Monday. Let's get going. Cuyahoga County Executive Armand Budish does not come across very well in the records of the criminal investigation we got we finally got hold of. Chris Ranowski, it always appeared that this was kind of a fool's errand to try and get him on a criminal violation, but it does involve staggeringly bad judgment and bad decision making. You'd almost could argue it's malfeasance, some of the things that came across. Probably the most frightening part of Adam Faris's reporting is what Armin Budish did with the Metro Health CEO. What do we have in this story? It's a lot to talk about. Right. So just for a little bit of quick background, there there has been an ongoing investigation by the FBI and prosecutors uh, with the Ohio Attorney General's office. It's been going on for a couple of years now. And it, it began in the HR department when and and then people in 2018 started dying in the jail and the investigation sort of turned to examine what was going on with the jail. And what we found was that there was a lot of what looked like a lot of corner cutting to make the jail seem like a profit center for the County. And that was largely driven by the former jail director by the name of a guy by the name of Ken Mills, who by by every account had little to no experience in corrections whatsoever and was just kind of given this job by County Executive Armin Budish and 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 put into this position to to kind of be a go between between Budish and the jail and and to kind of usurp the authority a little bit of the sheriff who was Cliff uh Pinkney at the time. And and what Adam's story really gets into, and this is this is the first real kind of clear picture we've had of, of, of what investigators were looking for. It, it really sort of explained how determined they were for this jail regionalization plan to work, which, which by jail regionalization, that meant that other cities were going to pay Cuyahoga County to house inmates in its jail, as opposed to running their own jails, which is expensive. And then the, the, and the county believed that by doing that, they would be able to shore up their budget and make a couple million, extra million dollars a year. But in order to do that, they started to cut in places. So they, they, they weren't 
they didn't have a lot of, of nurses. They didn't have, they were cutting in food. They were cutting in, in all aspects of the jail. They were trying to cut where they could. And, and then people started dying and then people started ringing the alarm bell about this. And, and the sort of crucial moment in this came when a guy by the name of Gary Brack, who was a nursing supervisor at the jail, basically went to a county, uh, county council meeting and blew the whistle on everything and said, Hey, you know, they've, we don't have a lot, enough nurses to take care of people. They've changed how we intake inmates with medical problems. And, and, and there's a lot going on that's concerning. And, and what happened after that, according to these documents, is that Budish basically kind of, kind of strong armed Metro Health CEO Akram Boutros into getting rid of this guy. And, and it, and it, it's, it's all in this story. I mean, I, I encourage people to go and look at this story because it's a really, it's a really in-depth piece that, that Adam worked really hard on. And, and we got a lot of, a, a, there was a lot of source material to go through to get what we right. got. And so, great. so, so let, let me step back a minute. I mean, mm-hmm. this investigation originally started with some questionable things that were going on in the IT department. Michael Malley was the county prosecutor. He had somebody start taking it over. And, and from there, it just kept mushrooming. Every story we did seemed like it steered the investigation in a new direction. It was almost megalomaniacal by the, by the then um, county prosecutor's office in this investigation. It turns out Michael Malley, because he represents the county and the county executive in civil actions, had a conflict of interest. So the attorney general took it over and kept the investigation going. And like you said, it turned very much to the jail away from what was, what was going on. From the beginning, it was like, where, where's the crime here? You're, you're, you're investigating bad decision making. But what was stirring was after Brack said negative things about the county in that meeting, Budish and Earl Lichen, his then chief of staff, show up at, at Akram Boutros's office. And they never said, fire this guy or we're stripping your budget. But that was the feeling Akram Boutros mm-hmm. said he had is like, they're here telling me get rid of a guy. And if I don't, all the things that I've got in the works that rely on county support are in jeopardy. I mean, that's really not the way the game is played. There's always been give and take, you know, calling Ackerman saying, you know, Ackerman, your guy went to the county council and ripped into us. I wish we could have talked about this to to work this out. I don't think it's as bad, but that's not what he did. He went over there with Lycan and said, and then Lycan, we have him in the story. He's saying things like the goal was intimidation, really bad governing. I, I wonder how much of this will play into um, any reelection attempt Budish makes next year. I mean, that this is bad leadership in, in every way. If you read this story, you're not going to come away feeling good about how he operated throughout this jail thing. And, and like you said, it's loaded with other stuff. Right. Um, even when they came over to talk to us, to, to our editorial board about this, he gets everybody together and says, look, I don't want anybody talking out of turn. Now, I get it. That's what you do with public relations. But man, it does seem really heavy handed if you're coming over to lay out your case before an editorial board. And the first thing you do is tell everybody, hey, shut up and follow my lead. Right. And I had kind of forgotten about that meeting. <laughs> and, they, and, and Adam was right in this that they did just kind of pick up and walk out. I mean, it was I remember that being very contentious and kind of frustrating. To your point about Akram, I, Akram Boutros, he, you know, he 
you know, he, he did express concern. I mean, they're, you know, trying to build a, a, a modern billion dollar hospital here. And, and he said he felt very intimidated by, by what was happening there. And I think I, you know, I, that's, that's, it's concerning. And, and I guess the question will be at the end of the day, does any of this rise to the level of a crime? And, you know, or, or like you said, is this just poor governance? Is it, is it wrongdoing or is it doing it wrong? And, and, and I think, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm curious to see where investigators are kind of going with this, but, but, you know, time will tell. I, I think what gets lost in this sometimes is that a lot of people died. And, and I think that that is, that is kind of a crucial part of the story that, you know, when we, when we get, when we dig down into the politics of this, you know, eight people died in less than a year in the jail and then more people ended up dying you know, after they kind of got their stuff together, after they finally brought the U.S. Marshals in, after we learned that the state was not really doing any sort of meaningful inspections in the jail, you know, it, it, there's a lot of human toll here, too, and and beyond just the politics of everything. Okay, you're listening to This Week in the CLE. What are the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame's big plans for 2021? Laura Johnston, this is our signature institution. It's unique on the planet. No one else has one. So when they announce what they're planning for new exhibits, we care. What are they planning? Yeah, so the new class is going to be announced in May, and then there's going to be a 2021 induction ceremony in front of a live audience. That's the plan right now in late October or early November in Cleveland. And that could be one of the biggest in recent memory, according to Troy Smith, who wrote our story and is a total music expert. Um, newly eligible acts like Jay-Z, the Foo Fighters are both likely to make the ballot. And those nominees are going to be announced just next month. So that's what's going on for the, the Hall of Fame classes. But the museum is embarking on a massive expansion. We've talked about the new building they're working on, but there's also this Legends of Rock exhibit in the museum's main hall. It has all sorts of clothing and other artifacts from some of the biggest stars in music history. That includes Michael Jackson, Bruce Springsteen. It's going to expand to four floors to show off even more treasured artifacts that have either not ever been on display or haven't been in years. So this will be exciting for people to see. The Rock Hall is open now. So this will be happening in the next couple of months. And then there's also going to be a showcase honoring the history of the Super Bowl halftime that will arrive in April to coincide with the NFL draft. It's tough for them because there is still this big hesitance by people to go indoors with strangers because of the coronavirus. And it, it, I'm sure they'll, they're very uh, eager to see the vaccines go big so that they can get crowds back in there. They've had a long, hard year without it, and they've got big expansion plans. They need their revenue. But they've got some things that I think will attract people back there once uh, once we're able to go outside and go visit places again. They are planning to have those um, socially distant concerts on their front um kind of porch there for the summer. So they are making plans to get people back at the Rock Hall this year. I wonder if they're planning July 4th as their coming out party. <laughs> You're listening <laughs> this week in the CLE. What's the latest plan to kill off the inexplicable gifts that Ohio legislators gave to First Energy at the expense of Ohioans in the very corrupt House Bill 6? Jane Cahoon, I got to salute this legislator. He keeps trying to do right by us all, even if his colleagues are still trying to protect this deal they gave to First Energy. What's the latest? The latest is this, this is a Republican senator. His name's Mark Romanchuk of 
Rich, Richland County, and he's been a constant critic of this tainted nuclear bailout law, but he hasn't been successful in trying to get his fellow lawmakers to, to repeal it. So he seems to be kind of trying to dismantle it in, in pieces. Um, and just to remind everyone, House Bill 6, uh, you, you said it was tainted, but it's it's this sweeping energy law that created this $1 billion plus bailout for the two nuclear plants owned by a former First Energy subsidiary. And it's at the center of this massive federal corruption probe with prosecutors alleging that First Energy and its affiliates bribed former House Speaker Larry Householder to to get it passed. But um, in addition to the nuclear bailouts, there are other parts that are maybe lesser known of this law that we have talked about before, in, including a couple of goodies that were put in there that really benefit First Energy. So Roman Chuck's bill would eliminate this decoupling provision, and that effectively guarantees First Energy's revenues at 2018 levels, which was a record year for them. And then there's another provision that allows them, it's, it has to do with the way they calculate their, their profits. And it's, um, it's a, it's a rule about, it's like a test they have to pass having to do with excess profits to make sure they're not making excess profits. But this, um, provision allows them to, you know, um, to, to pass that test. Uh, anyway, it would, uh, the, the bill would also force First Energy to refund the money it's already collected through the decoupling charge. Um, and that totaled 102 million in, in 2020, apparently. Uh, and, um, so it, anyway, the, what's interesting about this guy is he, he kind of speaks your language, Chris. He said, what's been missed in this entire conversation is that this was bad policy. Not only was the process tainted, uh, and possibly other things going on there, but the policy itself was absolutely bad. So that's what he's trying to bring attention to. You know, Roman Chuck is the antithesis of Bill Seitz, who keeps trying to protect <laughs> this thing. No, but you never hear Bill Seitz address why they saw fit to give First Energy these two gifts. There was never an explanation about why First Energy should be guaranteed the profits of its most profitable year or why it should be allowed to evade the excess profits bill. He just says, I'm, I, I think this is important nuclear policy, and it's a bunch of poppycock. And what's sad is he never really gets called on it, even though he's in the back rooms trying to preserve this sleazy deal, which costs us all money. I mean, yeah, he's in leadership in, in the house. First Energy spent $60 million to get this stuff passed. It was used clearly now, we know from all of the federal documents for bribery. So there was never a genuine discussion about any of this stuff. There was never proof that the nuclear plants needed the money. There was never real discussion about why First Energy should get this decoupling measure that guarantees them hundreds of millions of dollars. I mean, you know, they got a hundred million just last year, you said. So over 10 years, that's a billion extra dollars they got. And their CEO boasted about it on his his former CEO boasted about it on his calls with investors. Right. He told them it essentially takes about one third of our company and makes it somewhat recession proof. So that's a nice position to be in, right? Yeah, I certainly wish we could be recession proof in our industry. <laughs> but we don't, I guess we don't have $60 million to spend on bribes. I really would like to see Bill Seitz forced to explain himself on wanting to preserve these gifts. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Cleveland Mayor Frank Jackson's grandson, who narrowly escaped getting convicted of serious felonies a while back, is in big trouble again, getting arrested twice in a week, including early Sunday morning in Parma. 
Chris Ranowski, what's going on with this kid? You would think that that having escaped trouble pretty much last January and being the grandson of the mayor, he'd get his act together, but things are looking bad. Yeah, I know when somebody over the weekend said, hey, uh, the, did you hear the mayor's grandson got arrested? I was like, yeah, we wrote about it early in the week. They were like, no, he got arrested again. And I was like, wow, that is that, that's that's news. And and so it, it did turn out that he was taken into custody uh, Sunday after a what Parma police described as a short pursuit that came after a traffic stop. There was an initial report that he had dragged a police officer with his car, which ended up not being true. He kind of he struggled with the officers when they tried to get him out of the car. And I guess he stepped on the gas and and nobody was dragged. I think the officer ran with him for a little bit, then let go. And um, they they eventually took him into custody. It says it says here they were trying to pull him over because the tint on his window was too dark and. And I don't know necessarily know that we had – they police did not say what time. It was shortly after midnight Sunday, so it was early, early, early Sunday. How did you know that the tent in the window is too dark in the middle of the night? Yeah, I don't know. I, you know, I mean – but, you know, I mean, think about the, the reasons they pull people over for. Yeah, but but the, the pursuit, according to Parma police, they, they said it did hit speeds at about 100 miles an hour, and it – ended when he got off on Interstate uh, 90 near Lorraine Road. Uh, and of course, this comes just days after he was was charged with a misdemeanor domestic violence. And it comes uh, several months after he was he was convicted of uh, misdemeanor assault in a case uh, involving a, a woman he was dating. And 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 there was a lot of there, there was a lot of drama and history in that, too, which involved the initial investigation not being kicked up to county prosecutors and and he was eventually charged with a felony and then he pleaded guilty to a lesser charge at the trial so you know it doesn't look like his legal troubles are are coming to a close anytime soon it's almost like he had stuff in the car he wanted to get rid of before he turned himself in you know he'd flee whatever and then come back and turn yourself in at the police station it's just you know he got that that case last january i mean he was charged with serious felonies and the witnesses kind of fell apart on the stand. And then the county prosecutor, realizing their case was collapsing, offered him an, a pretty sweetheart deal in which he spent very little time behind bars. But to to have two different cases arise in the past week, I mean, things are not looking good. You'd think the mayor and his family would be sitting down with this kid saying, we got to get you on the straight and narrow, but not happening. Well, I mean, you can't you can't control the behavior of other adults. You know, I like what I worry and, and and look, I'm not a an apologist for the mayor by any means, but, you know, it's there's only so much you can do for your family. <laughs> and, yeah, and, and at some point, you know, you got to realize that these are adults and and, you know, they, they're responsible for their own decisions as well. You are listening to This Week in the CLE. Cleveland State University President Harlan Sands sent a note to the faculty and staff Friday night to defend the hiring of Douglas Dykes at 140000 a year, in spite of Dykes pleading guilty to obstruction of justice after lying to his former bosses in Cuyahoga County government. But Hans Sands, Lar Johnston, has opened a can of worms because by sending that note out very late Friday night, he said that none of the three dozen plus applicants who filed their applications by the deadline were qualified. Right. And yeah, this was the first time I believe that 
Harlan Sands has spoken publicly um, about the hiring. Yeah, he said they lack the right skills and experience to fill this critical role at our university. And he actually mentioned in the email that he sent the email because of news coverage in the Plain Dealer on Cleveland.com. He re- reiterated that he was aware Dykes was still on probation and that they believe in hiring uh, individuals with second chances. But he also criticized this application deadline and said that such deadlines may limit CSU's ability to find the best applicants. He's saying he's asking for recommendations to improve the hiring process in order to widen our pool of applicants and better identify individuals who have the talent, experience, and skills best suited for open positions. But the weird thing is, I believe this request for applicants lasted a year. It began in February 2019, concluded in February 2020. And by the time Dykes applied officially, it was December of 2020. So I don't know why you would want a longer time period. Well, the the problem Sands has, and man, he needs to get a better public relations department that could have warned him about this. When you say that none of those 37 applicants had the had the skill set needed, we're going to get their applications. And you, I bet we might find some of them were pretty qualified, but they're certainly going to be offended. Right. I mean, here they are. They apply on time. They they have their resumes. They have what they think are, are good qualifications. And here's the university president saying, yeah, none of them were good enough for us. I mean, that's just you're walking into a buzzsaw with that one. I also want to point out this idea of second chances. It's it sounds so good, right? We all believe in second chances. But here's the deal. A second chance doesn't mean you get the same job. The bank teller who embezzles gets a second chance, but the bank teller doesn't get to be a bank teller handling money. They get to do something else. A second chance doesn't mean you get to go back to doing exactly what you were doing when you did something bad. I mean, you'd be crazy if you were a bank to hire a teller who had embezzled, right? None of us would think that would happen. So to argue that he deserves this $140,000 job as a second chance, I'm throwing the flag. That's just nonsense, but it sounds so good that they use it as a soundbite. I I would like to also point out, this is Chris Wernowski, that um, Douglas Dykes was, his indictment and conviction were a result of the Cuyahoga County corruption investigation that we talked about earlier in this podcast, that, that his, the investigation into that office is what led to the investigation into the jail, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I just wanted to put those things together. Okay. You're listening to this week in the CLE. The guys running the Jack Casino in Cleveland have some bad news for anyone still holding out for a state-of-the-art casino on the banks of the Cuyahoga River. What is that news, Jane Cahoon, and what else did they have to say in an interview with reporter Rich Exner? Well, Rich interviewed Matt Cullen, who's chairman of Jack Entertainment, and the uh, management team there just recently bought out Dan Gilbert's ownership uh, interests. So so Rich, um, as you said, had an interview with him. But the one thing that you're referring to that he revealed was that this original plan to build this casino overlooking the Cuyahoga River behind the Terminal Tower Complex is dead. Um, if for those of you who remember, this was the supposed phase two of the grand plan for the casino. There were, they had these fancy renderings of it, you know, overlooking the river south of Huron Avenue. And they, they really showed that off during the campaign in Ohio to legalize gambling back in, in 2009. 
but then when they got around to making it a reality, they, they kind of set that aside and, and did this quicker plan to move into the Higby building. And they, they build that as a temporary location. And everybody wondered at the time, like, mm-hmm, is this really, you know, temporary? Uh, and in fact, over the years, it pretty much changed to uh, permanent and, and the second phase never came to be. And Colin, in fact, confirmed for Rich, there are no plans in the works to, to change that. He said there is not going to be a casino on that site. The casino in Cleveland is the one in the Higby building. See, I would argue normally that this was a hundred percent bait and switch and that, that Gilbert did Cleveland oh, wrong. Because, well, but, <laughs> but there is one caveat. I mean, that, the whole idea that he sold to Cleveland is I'm going to build a palace on the banks of the Cuyahoga River. That was the promise. That's what people voted on. There was never, ever any discussion of a temporary, then permanent facility. So the, for them to say that plan is dead, they basically were negged on what they offered. The only caveat is after voters approved the casinos, John Kasich was governor, kind of rammed through a deal where horse tracks could have slots, which was not contemplated by the casino movement. The casino movement thought there'd be casinos in Ohio's major cities, and that would be the only thing. But those those racetrack betting parlors for slot machines did siphon off some of the betters, which which did make it less profitable to have a casino in downtown Cleveland. So, and as got, we know, Jack owns one of those. The uh, right, <laughs> right. So they're making the money on both. But, but there, is, there are some economics there that did change after they made that campaign. That that makes it less of a of a bait and switch. Did they have anything else interesting to say? That I mean, Rich did ask him about you're you're doing this on your own. You're not affiliated with any of the big gambling names. Did they think that's a good thing or a bad thing? Well, I think they thought that was a good thing. They said they're focused on these two properties and, and that's it. Um, he also talked about how, you know, bus- the business in 2020, which pretty much mirrored that of the other casinos and racinos. I mean, overall in 2020, they had a really a bad and challenging year, but it, but it was interesting because obviously during the coronavirus related closings, you know, they did terrible because they weren't open, but, um, you know, they they did uh, when they were um, permitted to be open around the clock. They they did really well. So, you know, there he also said, uh, you know, this movement to legalize sports betting that Ohio keeps, you know, kind of contemplating while other states, you know, go ahead and um, do that. He said that would be something they would like to offer their customers. It's not like the uh, miracle, you know, for their bottom line, but I think it's an option that they would like to have. Okay. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. So good news for people trying to figure out how to get a coronavirus vaccine in Cuyahoga County, a one-stop shop for information. Chris Sarnowski, this is kind of a big deal because people in their 70s and 80s who, who are less comfortable with computers really want a voice on a phone. And even though we talked in great detail early in the podcast about Armin Budish's failings, he's kind of stepped up here to help all of those people that are desperate for that voice on the phone. Right. So the county, by way of the United Way, is going to be using the 211 help link hotline to allow residents here to access information about the vaccine, including eligibility details and places where they can actually get shots. So 
Um, that actually started today and the hours for it are from 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. Uh, the hotline is intended to basically help seniors and other eligible people who may have a difficult time finding vaccination information online uh, to figure out where they need to go in order to get their shots. Uh, under Ohio's vaccination plan, people must call uh, call around and like 90 or so providers within Cuyahoga County to try to find available vaccines. Um, 15 people will be working this hotline um, and they're going to be paid through the county. Um, and it will link callers to doctors and hospital systems, health clinics, pharmacies, and, and all of the various other locations that we've decided to, to, to spread this out and do this at. Um, pharmacies and other vaccination locations will then recommend, uh, will, will be recommended based on the caller's location. So, um, this. So, so this doesn't change the process. I mean, people still have to call and make their own arrangements, but for people that feel confused, having somebody on the phone saying, you know, look, Mrs. Quinn, you, you can call the CVS at this place or the Walgreens at this place or the UH center here. Try, try those three, see if you can get an appointment. It, it, it takes out the noise for them. It just, it, mm-hmm. it gives them some direction. And that's a big deal. I mean, for the, the idea of calling 90 places is frightening and daunting and thinking you have to get on the computer, at least having somebody to guide them and be a little bit of an advocate is, is a plus, right? Right. And, you know, I mean, we've had to kind of do this with older relatives in, in our family that, you know, who are, are struggling to find, you know, where to go. And, and it's interesting because there are places that people aren't thinking of that are, we found, we found availability at a health clinic and we, we were really surprised. They, I mean, they were, they were just like, yeah, come, come on in. And so everybody has, all of our older relatives all basically have appointments now. And, and I think, I think if you set out to do this on your own, especially if you're not computer savvy or, or, or uncomfortable using a computer, you know, this, this will, this will help take some of the stress out of it for many, many people. All right, Laura Johnston, we did talk to a bunch of people in their eighties to find out how it went in their first week last week. What did we hear? We heard that some people said it was way easier than they had expected, um, smooth as silk. I think the folks who are really in touch with their healthcare providers through UH or the clinic or Metro Health had a much easier time. They got messages through their internal systems like the MyChart system and were able to set up appointments through their doctor's offices. I think folks who are calling around to pharmacies are finding it more frustrating Um I've gotten more messages, people saying, I've called everywhere. I've put my name out everywhere. I'm not finding anything. Um, So you have a real gamut of people that have even gone from this is way easier to this is even more difficult than I thought it was going to be. All right. And as we move ahead in the weeks and younger and younger people can get it, I think you're going to see more confusion because there's not enough vaccines to go around. It's going to get more frustrating. But it was good to hear so many people were able to do it. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. That's it for the Monday. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Jane. Thanks, Laura. Thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast. We'll be back tomorrow with another episode. 